Blessed are those who thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Hello and welcome to our Thirsty Podcast. My name is Jeremy Lightning, and I'm here with my co-host, the great musician and singer, George Michael. (laughs) Very good. Today, our guest is Gene Strews, and uh, he was a teacher and coach at Fox Valley Lutheran High School. Welcome, Mr. Strews. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, Gene, why don't you tell us a little bit about your ministry? Because this is the first time that Jeremy and I are meeting you as well. Well, when I graduated from New Ulm, we were all trained to be elementary school teachers. And I got assigned to Fox Valley Lutheran High School because when I did my student teaching, they evidently thought I was a good math teacher. And I, uh, I was assigned to New Ulm from New Ulm to uh, Appleton for uh, one year. And at the end of the year, the Board of Regents at FEL asked if I could be reassigned permanently to Fox Valley Lutheran. And during my years at Fox Valley Lutheran, I never received a call to go anyplace else. So 43 years I taught at Fox Valley Lutheran. That's, that's amazing to not have received a call anywhere else in the ministry. Uh, and I, I loved every minute of Fox Valley Lutheran. It was a great place to be a teacher. What was what was the student body number like when you started there 43 years ago compared to where it is today? It was around 600, which was a real good number back then. And then during the course of the years, it probably dipped to like 510 at the lowest. And now it's up around 520, 530. So it's, it's worked its way back up, but... I think that has something to do with the woke society that more people are choosing to put their children in a Christian uh, Christian environment daily. Uh, what was your last year of teaching and coaching there? 2014. During during the 43 years there, I uh, I coached football 32 of those years, and I uh, I was athletic director 39. So so many years as athletic director. So you probably had my cousins, uh, Drew and Ross Hartwig. Uh, did you have them in, in on your team at all? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. So you said you were trained to do elementary school and then you went into high school. What was What's the big difference between being trained for elementary school and then teaching high schoolers for all those decades? Actually, no different. Okay. Uh, the, the big difference was in New Orleans, they always questioned if I could be a Christian teacher because I was very poor playing the piano. And uh, there were there were New Orleans profs that thought maybe I should quit school and find a different a different calling. And God knew better. I got my call to find so I Lutheran. I haven't touched the piano since I graduated from college. So what's your best uh, tip for uh, how do you get kids who don't like math to like math? I don't know, that's a good question. I used to uh, I used to have students that were C students in math in grade school, and they were B students for me. And we always had in so late September, we'd have a, a night where the uh, parents of the freshmen would come and visit, and our freshman algebra parents, they always complimented me how uh, other children understood math. I. Uh, I love teaching, and and the kids I think love me too, and we get along just fine. I, I a bus driver said to me, 
I asked the kids, well, the kids were talking about Mr. Struis. And they said, what do you like about Mr. Struis? They said, we lip off to him and he gives it right back to us. I don't just, it's, it's uh, just like coaching. You know, I, I wrote a book on coaching and on the preface, I said, it's an art. You have to learn how to do it. And I think back to math, maybe I wasn't too good when I started, but after 43 years, I knew what I was doing. There's there something go. maybe more so that comes uh, instinctively than you can't really explain what's the magic bullet. It's kind of got to be a little more finesse. Yeah, it, you, uh, I tell you, it just, like I said, it's an art. Same thing with coaching. Do you coach Jeremy? No. Um, because that, that takes a certain skill too. It really does. You, you can't be a Vince Lombardi in this day and age. You, you, just because you're good at the sport doesn't mean you'd be good at coaching it, in other words. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I just had a, a former member ask me for some help on a paper she was writing and it had to do with a degree she's getting on counseling and asked me about, you know, my ministry and counseling and so forth. And uh, I told her, yeah, I, I didn't really know a whole lot of things when I started. I still don't know a lot of things, but I guess in another 15 years when I retire, I'll know a whole lot, you know, and then I'll be done with the ministry. You know, you just, you just kind of learn a little bit as you go along. So, so with that, Jeremy asked you about getting guys and students to like math. What would be your advice on getting students who didn't really like football to enjoy playing football for you? Okay, it started, I used to have a, a camp for grade school kids. And you give them a helmet and shoulder pads so they think they're Green Bay Packers and you wanna have fun. They have to have fun. If they don't have fun, then they're not going to stay out for the sport. So, uh, so no. can we get a little bit into my book on coaching? Yep. Yeah, I was just going to ask you about that. If you want to tell, tell us about the two books you've written, but start with the one okay. on the coaching. Now, the one on coaching, 43 years teaching, 39 as athletic director, you see coaches do it the right way, and you see coaches do it the wrong way. And as an athletic administrator, once in a while, I would write a little paragraph down for myself just to make it clear in my mind. I still once in a while do that about things. That's probably, you know, something weird about me, but I, li I like to know what I'm going to say and prepare for it. So when COVID came, and here I was 70, what, one year, I'm 73 now, I was probably 71 years old. What do you do when you're sitting home from COVID? I had on my computer a lot of paragraphs about coaching things that sometimes may while you're in the job, they may irritate you and you write it out so that when somebody addresses you about it, you know what to say to them. So I had all these essays I had written to myself about coaching. So I started typing them up and uh, just by watching coaches and observing and coaching yourself, you see people do things the right way. So my essays, I've got over 50 of them are designed to tell coaches and, and athletic administrators how to do it the right way. And I have some things on how to not, how to not do it too. And now the, the second book came about because I was still bored after I wrote my first book. 
The first book is uh, Morning Prayers for Christian Schools. And our principal, my last year's teaching was Paul Hartley. He was a good administrator, and he had a great way of, of praying in the morning. He had me pray every Wednesday. He had like Dave Voss pray on Fridays, you know, Dave Payne another day. So he had, he had a different administrator each day. And then for the end of the school day, whoever had the chapel had to email him a prayer for the close, and then he always read the closing prayer. And when I retired, Al Nolte, who is now the principal, he was vice principal at the time, he knew that I saved all my prayers. He said, can you leave me your three-ring binder? And I said, oh, it's a mess. Because I maybe had a prayer that I had three years before. I rewrote it and proved it. I said, it's just a mess. Then COVID came. And I thought, I'm going to put those prayers into a book. So that's what I did. I put the prayers into a book. And uh, when it got published, Al Nolte got the first copy. He wanted it. So There you go. So Jeremy, uh you know, when COVID hit, I wrote a book. When COVID hit, Gene wrote two books. When COVID hit, what'd you do? Uh, I moved to Wisconsin. There you go. <laughs> That's good enough. So, so Gene, where can we find your books? Um, the book on prayers is at Northwestern Publishing House. And both the book on prayers and, uh, and the coaching book are on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. All right. So you mentioned uh, that I, I kind of assume FVL is similar to a lot of Lutheran high schools where the different faculty members take turns doing chapel. Yes. Uh, and so you probably had a regular um, schedule of, of leading chapel. Um, how did you go about preparing for that? And what was your experience like with that? You know, it was difficult all my years. I, it might take three hours to give a 12-minute chapel ser sermon. And uh, now that I'm retired, it'd be real easy. I think I'm older and wiser at 73 than I was at 23. Huge difference. And I uh, part-time for our church, I go to church at St. Peter. We have the North Campus and we have the core downtown. And I go and visit the shut-ins from our church on the North Campus. And... Uh, I, I go out and visit them, have a devotion, socialize, serve in communion. And then once a month, I write a, a sermon that's mailed out to our shut-ins and senior citizens. And I find it so easy to write a devotion now. So easy. And I, I look back and think, boy, when I was a teacher, I struggled with it. But now it just it just rolls. I know in talking with one of our Shoreland teachers, and he said the same thing that he really struggles with doing chapel and things like that, even though he's an excellent teacher. So why do you think it's, it was so hard for you, but now you find it so easy? I guess uh, it gets easier as you're, as you mature as a Christian. At age 73, I'm much more mature. Now I've been a Wells Lutheran my whole life and always been in the word, but uh, I don't know. I, I was wondering if it's because you have had so much practice where you had to crank it out when it was hard that now finally maybe it it, it kind of just started clicking because it, you you rehearsed it so much. Maybe. Maybe it's because when I was writing sermonettes for devotions at FEL, I was also football coach, athletic director, taught math, taught phi ed, taught reading. I could, 
I've got a degree in teaching reading from kindergarten through 12th grade. I mean, uh, they got their money's worth out of me. So now I'm retired and I'm gonna write a devotion. I think about it for three days, what my topic's gonna be. And you sit down and, and you write it. So I have more time now. That might be a big thing. Well, that's interesting uh, because the episode that we watched this morning with our Bible study was the last episode, episode eight of season two of The Chosen, where Jesus is working on his Sermon on the Mount, and he's trying to come up with an introduction to it with Matthew is writing down his notes. And he finally comes up with the Beatitudes. And in, in talking with it with our people that were in Bible study today, I just asked them, do you know how your pastor, you know, writes a sermon? And they said, well, he, he just gets up there and talks, right? I said, no, no it's, I said, the rule of thumb is usually an hour of study and preparation for every minute in the pulpit. And I, and I said the same thing that you were saying, Gene, I said, uh, I was going to be preaching on John, Jesus talking to Nicodemus at night, uh, next week's gospel lesson. And I said, uh, I've got the body of the text figured out, but I was like Jesus trying to work on the right introduction to set everything up. Now, we don't know if Jesus really struggled with it. One of the things that's interesting with The Chosen is there are ways that uh, the producers are emphasizing Jesus' humanity, and he just doesn't come easily because he's God. You know, He has to work through things. Have you noticed that, Jeremy? Because I know you're a big fan of The Chosen. Yeah, uh, Gene, have you seen it at all, The the Chosen? Yes, I just, and it's funny that our church right now, we're meeting on Monday evenings for an hour and a half, and we watch an episode of The Chosen. We, uh, we're doing season three right now, but I had not watched seasons one and two. So it's, it's funny that you, you mentioned you know, Jesus writing the uh, Sermon on the Mount. I've been binge-watching it the last couple of weeks to get caught up, and I just happened to watch that episode maybe maybe about a week ago. Okay. about Jesus and Matthew, you know, he's struggling to figure out how he's going to do the Sermon on the Mount. So. But that, that's what, yeah, Michael, you asked what I was thinking, and I actually really appreciated that, them depicting it that way. I suppose it's possible that Jesus could have just channeled his divine nature and off the top of, you know, off the cuff, more or less, uh, got something uh, that was a beautiful sermon. But uh, I, I keep thinking of, the boy Jesus in the temple in Luke chapter two, where it says he learned, he grew, uh, he went through the normal human process of um, experiencing things and, and finding things out uh, because he did not make constant use of his divine nature. Uh, he went through everything that we went through. So as a preacher, that would have been one of the things that he um would have would have needed to learn as a skill to, to get better at um uh, it, it could have been i should say um and i was gonna say i know we should be interviewing our guest right now but michael i wanted to mention from the ash wednesday sermon that uh i i think there's a case to be made that jesus might not have known in perfect detail everything about uh his death uh, that um, he he certainly I, I think he it seems like he had a pretty clear idea that he was going to be crucified. He said the Son of Man must be lifted up, but in his human nature, did he necessarily um, 
know all the little ins and outs of how the trial was going to go and what day it was going to happen on and so forth. Yes, in his divine nature, he did. But was he always making use of his divine nature? Right. And that's and that's a good, good point. Uh, I think the author of that NPH series on his final steps, that's kind of where he, I didn't read all the sermons, I waiting to hear the other pastors and what they do with them, but I'm thinking that was his, uh, the main author's uh, thought of Jesus knew everything and he probably focused on his divinity. And yeah. so that's, that's a big question, but I think that leads into what we're going to be talking about with the gospel lesson. Jesus if we focus on Jesus' divinity with his temptation, well, it's easy uh, to overcome the, the devil's temptations. But he's also human, and so he's going to struggle with that. In The Chosen, they keep having Jesus disappear. He's walking off, and they don't see him for hours. And I keep thinking of the Garden of Gethsemane, where he's praying to the Father. And that's what I envision he's doing in The Chosen, when he's wandering off and they don't see him for hours he comes back you know around around and when the others are sitting around the campfire he's coming back and he's been talking with his father yeah and that's what they were talking the disciples were talking about in the episode today where they're all around the fire in the morning and they're arguing with each other and they make the comment well the rabbi is not here very often he's off by himself an awful lot now another thing what I really enjoy about The Chosen, when I read the Bible, I want to know what's going on on the other side of the room. What's the backstory? You know, God gives us what we have to know. And the Bible is so concise in certain places, like the Last Supper, when Jesus indicates that Judas is going to betray him. My mind is thinking, what are the other disciples saying when they see this? But we're not, you know, God tells us what we need to know and not more, but I'm curious to know. And when I see the chosen, it, uh, it kind of fits in with my way of thinking. It's a, it, a comment that I heard once that I try to share with my students is, you know, the Bible is actually a very short book. And they say, what in the world? Of course, the Bible is so long. It's a huge book. No, no, the Bible of all the things that God could have told us, all the details, he left out an awful lot. Yeah, very much so. Well, and, and then with that, as we're getting into the gospel lesson is, you know, we have Satan tempting Jesus three times, but is it possible that there are more than those temptations, but the Holy Spirit only gave us those three main temptations? Because it's 40 days of tempting, right? Well, I don't know. The tempting, I think, was at the end of the 40 days, wasn't it? Well, I guess we should look into the gospel lesson. We can <clears throat> ask the question then. <laughs> uh, Jeremy, you want to read it for us? Yeah, and I think a thing to keep in mind is you. I think there, that you're both right to a certain extent that if we would read other gospels about the temptation, I think there might be one. I don't know, Michael, you might have to look it up. Uh, Mark or Luke that says... He was being tempted by the devil 40 days. But then this one, yes, it does say, uh, it, it kind of makes it sound, Matthew makes it sound chronological from verse 2 to verse 3. Let me read it. Uh, Matthew chapter 4. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came and said to him, 
If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city. He placed him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not test the Lord your God. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. He said to him, I will give you all of these things if you will bow down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go away, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and just then angels came and served him. So Jeremy asked me to look this up. So Matthew records it this way by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, where Gene was saying this, uh, after Jesus had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, uh, he was hungry, uh, so uh, he was tempted by the devil. Uh, but Luke says it this way, uh, uh, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. Okay. And then all that Mark says on this is the Spirit immediately sent Jesus out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. Okay. So so I wonder if it's it could be like a... Like I said, I, th I think it's possible that, that you both are right, uh, that the devil is always tempting all of us in subtle ways uh, to, to get angry or to uh, be lazy or whatever it might be with the little, little troubles in our life or hiccups or, or constant pains. But then uh, at the end of the 40 days or at, toward the end of them, that then there was like a really big head-on face-to-face showdown that uh, was sort of the culmination of all the little uh, more subtle temptations. Well, getting into that, so then Gene, we've been talking about this, but why did Jesus go into the desert? Because he became man and he had to fulfill the scriptures. And that was part of it. Had he stayed in heaven, if he just was God, he would never experience temptation. But coming to earth, being man, he had to fulfill the scriptures. And that was part of it. Yeah, and uh, the writer to the Hebrews says it this way, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. So he came to be tempted. Uh, and then uh, John puts it this way in his epistle. This is why the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. And to do that, he needed to be tempted and then defeat the devil's temptations. I don't I don't think a lot of our people think of this though, Jeremy. Whose will was it that Jesus be tempted? Uh are you looking at uh, verse one where it says he was led by the spirit? Yes. Um in fact I think Mark's gospel has it even stronger. The spirit the spirit drove him or almost hurled or threw him out into the desert. Um you can you can almost think of like a <laughs> I just 
I have this memory of our oldest son when he was about, I don't know, two or three years old. He was a ring bearer in the in in my younger brother's wedding. And uh, he had done it just fine in the rehearsal. But then on the wedding day with all the audience, you know, the, the congregation full of people and the music playing and everybody had pretty well already processed up to the front. The ushers at the church uh, kind of shoved him out the back door or uh, down toward down the aisle uh, and, and shut the back doors of the church behind him. And there he was just kind of standing there looking terrified and um, not really knowing what to do. And, and I think somebody kind of co coached him down the aisle and he finally made it to the uh, front of the church. But um, you can almost picture that happening here with Jesus, that it's like God, the father saying, here's his innocent uh, vulnerable son, and he's he's saying, "All right, now go go take on Satan." You're right, Jeremy. Mark has it in the way the EHV translates translates it as the Holy Spirit sent him into the desert. But I remember it being a little bit stronger of a verb in other translations. So, Gene, who is the devil? Uh, according to verse one or satan according to verse 10 what do those titles mean is this a trick question nope yes. i just think it's a fallen angel and he he wants he wants us to be with him and uh you know how you know you, you teach a lutheran high school people say is there sin in the lutheran high school well you bet there is i mean the satan's going to work as hard at a lutheran high school as any place he's going to come after us and Jesus, the Son of God, also, man, Satan's going to come after him. Uh, but I, I want to focus on too. Do you guys know what the titles of devil? So, Michael, Satan are you mean? Michael? Are you are you driving at um, devil? Is is kind of like tripper upper? The word means to 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 trip somebody or trick somebody uh, and and make them fall. And then, uh, and then Satan would be accuser right. that um, Satan wants to be able to say to God, oh, look at your son. Your son is uh, no better than any of the other humans. He fell prey to my tripping up. And uh, he wanted to make that accusation. And so Satan means accuser. Devil means tempter. Right. Yeah. And I just want to drive that home for our people. Uh, and the way the EHV has it is they have a note too that they capitalize devil and satan because those are titles and not just uh, descriptions of this evil angel but i shared a meme with my seventh graders this week it was it said uh you know it's for parents that think their children are little angels and then down the bottom it says well so was lucifer uh so I think it's important, too, for our people to listen to and understand, like you said, Gene, that the devil is just an angel. So I don't know if you guys ever notice it with your high schoolers or Jeremy in the parish, if people got the wrong impression that the devil and Satan was as strong as God. Do you ever encounter that? I, th I think normally if you ask somebody who's what's the opposite of God, they'll say the devil, and uh, that's the wrong answer. It's 
God, God is his own opposite. He, uh, he's not even on par with the devil. Um, but, uh, I, I kind of cut Gene off before he got to say something there. Well, when, when I think of Jesus being tempted, I go back and think of Joel. And when Satan was going to tempt Joel, God said, well, you can do everything, but you can't take away his life. So who's in power? God's in power. Satan is not his equal. You know, God has reins on Satan. Right. And that's a good way of quoting a mighty fortresses or God, you know, on earth is not his equal. But I just bring that up because I think a lot of people think that it's the Chinese yin and yang, you know, of the white and darkness, that you have the power of good and the power of evil. And that's not the way it is. It's like you guys described it is the devil, as strong as he is, is nothing more than an angel, the strongest of the angels, the leader of the fallen angels. But he's no no closer to being equal to God uh, than that. Because uh, he's just a created being. Gene, why was the devil's first temptation so powerful to, for Jesus? Well, he hit him when he was hungry. And hunger is a strong desire. You know, it's hard to control your hunger. And if Jesus fasted for 40 days and and looking at the, the two, uh, looking at, you know, both Luke and Matthew, and like Jeremy said, Maybe he was tempted for 40 days, but now this is this is the climax. These are the three big ones where Jesus withstood, and he's physically weak. And this is the human part of Jesus. He was weak and hungry. So the, Satan probably figured this is a good time to attack. So to follow up on that, Jeremy, how is this temptation similar to the one that the devil used uh, millennia earlier in the Garden of Eden? I think well, and it's it's similar because first of all, it involves food, but then um, anything I think you could say it has to do with uh, whatever you have an appetite for. Um, so you could see in this temptation, Jesus resisting uh, the appetite that humans have for um, recognition, for uh, you know honor or glory. Uh, that that could turn into a sinful appetite. Uh, you could see uh, sexual appetite here. You could see um, uh, an appetite for clothes or riches or, or whatever it is, the, the physical things that we want is all kind of summed up nicely in Jesus' temptation to turn stone into bread. And um, the, the good news is that Jesus resisted that temptation to atone for all the times that we gave into those temptations. Have you guys ever read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? No. Yes, uh, I, just I have. Okay, I just finished reading it last night. I'm working on reading through all of C.S. Lewis's books. And in there, uh, you know, it's kind of like an allegory of of Jesus and, and humans because uh, – Lucy and Edmund and Peter and Susan, the four children that go into the wardrobe and then end up in Narnia. They're called the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve. But Edmund, who's nine, he goes in and he meets the white witch and she tempts him with food. It's Turkish delight. And uh, I know I've had Turkish delight. I don't know if you guys have. Maybe 
mine wasn't very good. Well, I know it wasn't very good. And I don't know why anyone would want it, but maybe it was just the version I had. But the idea is that he just kept eating more. C.S. Lewis says he ate pounds of it. And eating pounds of anything, even if it's healthy for you, isn't going to be good. When he gets back into the real world, he's sick, but he always wants more. And if it's, that's an imagery of we always want you know, what the sinful nature wants and we're never going to get enough, no matter if it's good for us or not. And the devil always twists it. Uh, and on a side note, too, one of the things I was reading in the EHV notes that I never picked up before that the way Jesus defeats this and the other temptations, every one of them is a quotation from the wilderness years. So there's another tie to the Old Testament of, you know, the 40 days that Jesus is in the in the wilderness of the desert, the way that the children of Israel with Moses was 40 years in the wilderness of the desert. And then all four of these quotations that Jesus uses to defeat the devil are from those wilderness years. I never I never picked up on that before. So then, but that leads into this question, Gene. How did Jesus respond to the devil's first temptation? Well, the first one, the same as the second and the third, by quoting God's word. And it, it just shows we can't, as humans, we can't do it on our own. If we're going to withstand the devil, it's got to be God on our side. So the, the devil, the devil can't answer God's word. Yeah. So then applying that, Jeremy. What is, Gene already kind of touched on this, is what does this teach us about how we can overcome temptation? To know the word, to be familiar with it, to apply it uh, in a situation, uh, in a fitting way that, um, like, like Gene said, that the devil can't really resist. Yeah. And I think this is why we, we teach our students to memorize Bible verses. Uh, I know. I don't know what, what it was like for you, Gene, but I taught just one semester of religion at Shoreland a long time ago, and those high schoolers complained about memorizing memory work more than my seventh and eighth graders do. But this is why we want to know memory work. This is why it's good for us as adults to know different verses of the Bible, know verses of hymns, and so forth. Because sometimes that's easier if we can sing a little bit that just rolls off the tongue. Because as I, I quoted Luther's hymn before, uh, the devil will flee us whenever we bring up Jesus and his word. And knowing, knowing the hymns, the hymns that are so scripturally sound, is such a blessing. I think back to my, you know, you mentioned, you know, your seventh graders. When I was in seventh grade, my dad sang in the church choir. And now when I sing a Lenten hymn, I think of that because... My dad had to get to church an hour early, and I'd go with them, and we always had to have our, our hymn memorized for Thursday morning. So I'd sit in a pew at church while he's in choir memorizing those hymns. And I just, I so much love now when I when I sing a Lenten hymn, I think of sitting in that pew in Redding, Minnesota, memorizing hymns on Wednesday while my dad's in the basement rehearsing with the choir. And for our listeners, if you haven't found on the Raised with Jesus podcast, every Friday morning I have a devotion on an upcoming hymn for this coming Sunday. And this one is the Tree of Life. And I already had a couple of emails from our members thanking me for the devotion on that because they just love that hymn. It's a newer one. 
but they just love that the connection for this for especially for this Sunday of the three different trees that I focused on the tree in the garden the tree of the cross and then the tree of life in in revelation uh, well I didn't focus on it that's what the author of the hymn did so then Gene what was the devil's second temptation um was that the Let's see, I can, I can think of what the order is. Was the second one the throwing off the temple? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, the third one was, yeah. In, in three days, you'd be raised up. Yeah so, the, yeah, so the second one is the devil takes him to the pinnacle of probably the, the southeast corner of the Temple Mound. Uh, it's looking down in the Kidron Valley. The EHV notes says that the drop there the historian josephus says would have been about 450 feet or 41 stories so that's that's a good drop so jeremy so Struz, i gotta this just has me thinking since you're a football coach i always remember uh when i when i went to prep our football coach i was a lineman and uh our football coach would always tell us uh take him where he wants to go it's so a guy the guy if you're blocking him if he wants to go to the right, you he's, you, you you let him go right. You, you just keep in front of him. You just keep taking him where he wants to go, and you just stay in between him and your quarterback. And I kind of think if if that isn't a good analogy to the devil's tactics here, is he's taking Jesus where he wants to go. With the first temptation, he said uh, God's word as a response. And the devil says, uh, oh, well, if you want to, quote God's word I'll quote God's word with you and and he, he's he's like let let's go let's go in that direction and then let's go too far in that direction and 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 he really ends up misquoting God's word but is that is that a football uh, technique oh. that you taught your players in football's like chasing a squirrel around a tree especially with the wide receivers the wide receiver can take the guy right or left whichever he takes and the running back goes the other way if you got a real big lineman that can't can't hardly move, if he gets the guy in the way, you're chasing chasing around the tree. Now back to the scripture. Um, the devil this, did this in the Garden of Eden too. He kind of he kind of likes to try to quote God and twist it, and that's what he's doing. The devil's twisting it here. You guys are losing me on all these football analogies, by the way. Well, that, uh, you lose me all the time on your. Uh, comic book i'm sorry graphic novel analogies that's okay that's okay you'll, you'll you catch said, up sometime you've, you've heard our podcast before have you heard his uh, movie quotes and his superhero analogies i, I just i've heard a few but uh not not those analogies i don't believe there you go so so jeremy what is jesus teaching us here in the way he responded to the second temptation up on the top of the temple well, a couple of things. One of them that's interesting is he doesn't he doesn't really even uh, acknowledge the devil's use of God's word. He lets God's word stand on its own. Yes, it is true. His angels will protect you. I'm not going to deny that. You know, Jesus isn't saying, no, that's wrong, because it's right. It, he will send his angels to concern you uh, and guard you in all your ways. But uh, instead of getting caught up in that trap, um, he redirects and says, uh, let's look at this other thing that God said. 
which is do not put the Lord to the test. Um, so it, it's uh, the, the, he's, he lets both of those scriptures stand on their own. He doesn't try to uh, meld them or harmonize them. Uh, he just says, now is not the time for that passage. Now is the time for uh, not putting God to the test. And when he says, don't put God to a test, what parent hasn't said to their child, don't push me, don't push me. And uh, you test God, you're going to get some righteous anger. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, what you were saying there, Jeremy, I would say that's why we as Lutherans, we use the catechetical method. You know, we don't just take one portion of scripture and then just go with that is we look at what else God has to say elsewhere, like we do in our catechism. And then we bring that in and we find the balance because, uh, you know, we don't want to put the Lord our God to the test. And yet we also understand, like in Malachi, where he says, test me in this, says the Lord. So there are times that God wants us to challenge him and test him. And we have to figure out what does that mean in a sanctified way and not feeding our sinful nature. So then, Gene, why was the devil's third temptation, in my mind, possibly the greatest temptation of all? Because Jesus said, the Father has given me all, I think it's Romans 8, the Father has given me all things. In other words, Jesus already has everything. God has given him power. And uh, now the, uh, the, the devil is trying to give him something he already has. But now the difference, I suppose, is the Son of Man and the Son of God. You know, he's tempting the the man. But well, that's yeah, that's exactly right. Something he already has. That that's exactly right, Gene. Because that's exactly what the devil's tactic was with Adam and Eve too. With Adam and Eve, he said, "Oh, you'll be like God." Well, they already were made in God's image. Um, so that uh, the devil so often does this. He, he tempts us with something that uh, we we if we thought about it we I've already I already have that I don't really need to fall prey to this temptation God's already given that to me and the reason I wrote that question that way of uh, possibly the greatest temptation is because growing up I never understood this temptation because like you guys were saying Jesus already had the earth he had everything why would if he why would he be tempted? to bow down to Satan and get everything. It wasn't until I be much later on and I matured in the faith to understand Jesus calls Satan the prince of this world, that he kind of owns this world. And what Satan was saying is, you bow down to me, I'll make it easy for you. You don't have to suffer and die. You don't have to go through all of that. I'll just give it all to you. But then he, you know, he loses it all. And, and it's not Satan's big deal. Right. So, so Jeremy, three times Jesus replies to the devil's temptation by saying, it is written. What does this teach us about how we can ward off the devil's attacks? I, I think we pretty well discussed that. It's using God's word and uh, applying it in the right way at the right time. Yeah, and that's, uh, that's where I would encourage our listeners, you know, you got to go to church. You'll find a Bible study or your pastor's Bible study on Sunday morning, a small group Bible study during the week. Listen to 
podcasts like this and other ones on the Raised with Jesus Network. Uh, just get into your Bible. Uh, have devotions. Have family devotions. Couple devotions if you're married. Get into praying, meditating like on God's the, Word. Be like the seventh grade Gene Strews, uh, memorizing your hymns <laughs> during uh, Lenten, during your dad's Lenten choir practice. Or I was thinking about the retired Gene Strews that spends three days thinking about it before he writes a sermon. You know, you got to just, sometimes it's, it's okay just to think about God's word. You want, want anything to that, Gene? Here, here's the other thing about writing a devotion. I use the catechism. I use it a lot. Our catechism is so good. I had, I had some cancer removed 13 years ago. So I was off of school for two weeks while I was healing. And I took Luther's small catechism I went from front to the back and took notes. And it is so valuable now, 13 years later, that when I want to write a devotion for the seniors in our church, you know, I've got those notes and, and it's good to piece everything together. Anything else you guys want to add to with this, with the gospel lesson? Okay. So Jeremy, you want to get into the, the epistle lesson from Romans? Romans 5, starting with verse 12. So then, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, so also death spread to all people because all sinned. For even before the law was given, sin was in the world. Now sin is not charged to one's account if there is no law. Yet death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those whose sin was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a pattern of the one who was to come. But the gracious gift is not like Adam's trespass, for if the many died by the trespass of this one man, it is even more certain that God's grace and the gift given by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflowed to the many. And the gift is not like the effect of the one man's sin, for the judgment that followed the one trespass resulted in a verdict of condemnation, but the gracious gift that followed many trespasses resulted in a verdict of justification. Indeed, if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through the one man, it is even more certain that those who receive the overflowing grace of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So then, just as one trespass led to a verdict of condemnation for all people, so also one righteous verdict led to life-giving justification for all people. For just as through the disobedience of one man, the many became sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, the many will become righteous. So Gene, with the beginning verses of this text, I want to just kind of look at each little phrase there, if you want to explain this to everyone. What does Paul mean when he says, sin entered the world through one man? Um, well, man was created in God's image, and now Adam and Eve went contrary to what God had commanded them. And what's, what's interesting is there's no mention of Eve in here, is there? It's Adam, 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 one man. And Pastor Mike Novotny, I remember a couple of years ago, had a sermon where he said, Eve gets a bad rap. Adam was there with Eve, and he said nothing when the fruit was eaten. And uh, so entering by one man, yeah, it was... It was a two-person two person show, but, you know, Adam and Eve were both there. 
but that was that was the beginning. I mean, God God created them in His image, and they wrecked it. You know, that's a good point you brought up, Gene, and your pastor brought up when I take people, usually my adult confirmands, through Genesis chapter three, and I ask them, well, where was Adam when the devil was tempting Eve? And they miss it right away, and they think, well, he was off naming the animals. And I said, no, it says it right here. He was right there with her, and he didn't speak up, and he didn't use his his leadership, and that's why God blames Adam for the sin. And then because of that, uh, Paul says, death spread to all people. So, Jeremy, what does he mean when he says sin is not charged to one's account if there is no law? That you're not aware of it. Uh, it's um, you, you need to you need to have something in writing for there to be an awareness that there's a uh, it, I, I, we've got to, myself and uh, Jean here who are high school teachers or experienced with high school administration, at least uh, he is. And uh, I'm sure he, he could talk about policies that uh, if you don't have a policy for something, you have a hard time enforcing discipline on, on a student. Um, so where there is no policy, they think that they've done nothing wrong. Uh, and and in, as a matter of fact, they have done nothing wrong. Uh, but that doesn't change the fact, like Paul said earlier, that uh, there, there still is sin. Uh, and now I'm losing my place here. Where does he say that? Even before the law was given, sin was in the world. Even if there is no policy, that doesn't mean the kid is a good kid. He's still a bad kid. You just don't have any uh, hard, fast proof to make a case. Yeah, I think that's a good analogy. I think well, like, let the admit let the high school administrator speak to that. Well, let me. I was going to speak to it about you know with grade school because I sit in a lot of grade school meetings too. We're writing policy, and we write policy. Why? Anytime a parent looks at the policy, it's because some kid broke this uh and and that's and that's why so go ahead gene i can with 43 years experience i can tell you which kid we wrote the policy for and then 20 years later you you're using the same policy because the kid showed you you needed the policy um now the other the other thing is the law was written when moses went up the mountain but yet you go back to cain Cain killed his brother. There was no written law at that time. But yet, God punished him. I mean, God spoke to him. So, I mean, he, he did break a law, even though it wasn't written until Moses came down the mountain. Right, and that's what, and that's what uh, Paul means when he says, nevertheless, death reigned. That even though he didn't have the law written, from Mount Sinai, that policy written, still all people from Adam through Moses died. And then the last phrase I want to look at here, Gene, is he says, breaking a command as did Adam. What does he mean by that? Who's he talking about? As in Adam? Yeah, breaking a command as did Adam. Well, that basically we, we've all sinned. That's, that's the way I read that is, yeah, yeah, we've all come short. So, so then, Jeremy, why is 
Paul making this comparison between Adam and Jesus? Uh, because Adam made a decision and took an action that ended up plunging the entire human race into sin. And in a very similar way, Jesus made a decision and took action that ended up reversing uh, Adam's uh, sinful behavior uh, so that uh, all people are now saved, uh, all people are justified, um, all people are redeemed and atoned for in Christ. So they, they both are a, a type of each other. They're both similar to each other, Christ and Adam, because they both uh, did something that impacted the entire human race. Right. Uh, we just put up our Lent paintings at our Racine campus, and I got a lot of uh, people that comment on it, adults and, and kids, because the way the two paintings are opposed to each other is on the one painting, it's Adam, who's now clothed, and he's come back kind of like to the scene of the crime, picked up a piece of fruit that has a bite out of it, wondering, like, what have I just done? And behind him is a very brightly colored serpent on the tree. And then on the other side of the church is the second Adam, Jesus Christ, on in a very uh, dark and foreboding tree of the cross. But the snake uh, is now dried up and withered and gaunt underneath his heel. And so those two paintings are really demonstrating uh, verses 15 and Verse 15, but the gracious gift is not like Adam's trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of this one man, it is even more certain that God's grace and the gift given by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflowed to the many. So it's carrying out that you've got that one Adam who plunged the world into sin, like you said, and now the second Adam, Jesus Christ, undoes everything. And then I guess, that goes to the next question then, Gene. Why can we be so certain that our sins are taken away based on what Paul's talking about here? I just think, you know, when you think of, is our faith real? You think of scripture from Genesis to Revelation, how it all comes together. You know, you think of Jesus, you know, you're studying the chosen now, how, how everything, you know, God, Jesus says, I am the law of Moses. He's fulfilling it. So I just think how, how it just all works together is just so certain that uh, we have peace of mind knowing what God does for us. Uh, you guys have anything else you want to bring up with this text on the, the two atoms, the first and second? Just that uh, I, I, I think... Um... Paul also makes the point that um, there's an even greater, it, even though uh, Jesus and Adam are very similar to each, well, two things. Okay, I got two things. One is um, what an important thing it is for us to teach and continue to believe the uh, by what scripture says about creation, that uh, we are not evolved, we are not... Um, you know, distant relatives of primates, uh, that uh, Adam was a real historical figure. And this is a good example of why that's so important, because uh, Christians who believe in evolution 
they they would say, well, Adam is kind of a metaphor uh, for all humankind, and uh, he's not actually a historic person. Well, if Adam is just a metaphor, if he's not a real historic person, then uh, Paul's analogy here of Adam to Christ, Christ falls apart too. Because then is Christ a real person? Is Christ just a metaphor since Adam's just a metaphor? Um, and so uh, that's that's one thought. And then the other thought is, even though there's such an analogy between the two, that um, Adam and Christ both did things that impact the entire human race, um, I, I think that it's uh, important to point out, is it in these verses or the ones that follow it, Paul says that actually... What Christ did is of even more power, even greater value than what Adam did. Adam plunged us all into sin, but uh, Christ and his saving work are even even greater. I'm trying to find, if, is that in the verses following this, or is that in this reading that I just did? I think it's coming up. Okay. Well, the point remains, uh, Christ is like Adam but Christ is also greater than Adam. Yeah, and just to bring up again where I would I was reading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and I'd say this is a spoiler alert, but since the book was written in the 1960s, if you haven't read it by now, I'm not going to spoil too much. Uh, but Edmund, you know, he gets, because he betrays his family, the White Witch has control over him. And so then Aslan, the lion, he goes and he gives himself up for for Edmund. And, you know, there's the it's a very strong metaphor for Jesus because all of the witches beasts, they tie him up, they shave him, they mock him and so forth. And then she slays him with a knife and then he he's there dead on the stone table. And so it's very much a redemption uh, but unlike uh, Jesus being in the de being dead in the grave for three days, it's an evening, and then the stone table breaks, and Aslan is, you know, re resurrected and more powerful, and so forth. But again, he redeems Edmund, and Edmund, you know, he he goes on to be a king of Narnia then, and and that's that imagery of us why we want to continue to praise Jesus because he died for us, was raised for us, and now he has made us kings and queens of his kingdom. But also, I guess one more thing too is, if I was preaching on this text, I'd look at those uh, verse 17 and uh, actually just verse 18, two very strong words to be able to uh, hang on people's minds of, trespass and verdict you know that adam did this and we still do this that let's understand a trespass you go where you don't belong adam went where he didn't belong and ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil we go where we don't belong with every single sin and yet christ has given us the verdict of innocent and he has freed us from uh from the punishment the hellish jail time of that we deserve for our trespasses now, when I look at those same verses here, where he talks about righteous, we are righteous by what Jesus did for us, but he was righteous 
I mean, righteous is similar, but it's different. I mean, Jesus was always righteous, and we we become righteous through his, his righteousness and his sacrifice. That thing uh, I was trying to say before was in verse 16. Uh, the gift is not like the effect of the one man's sin. So uh, even though Adam and Christ are similar, what they did ends up being very different. Yes, it impacts both, uh, both impact the whole world and all mankind. But uh, Paul said, the gift is not like the effect of the one man's sin for judgment followed one trespass resulting in a verdict of condemnation. But the gracious gift that followed many trespasses resulted in a verdict of justification. And that's, that's a more uh, predominant theme. That's a more powerful thought in, in Paul's mind here is the justification, the declaring us not guilty because of Jesus. Very good. All right, then we'll wrap it up here. And just want to uh, have our listeners, you can check out Gene's two books, Morning Prayers for a Christian School and Essays on Coaching Athletics. And then I also want to promote a new book that all of you can now pre-order. It's my first book. And I'm excited about it. It's called Resisting the Dragon's Beast. What happens when God's servant of the government behaves like Satan's servant? Uh, just like Gene's books, you can find it on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Uh, also, my publisher, Athanatos.net, has a hardcover, softcover, and ebook. So we'll wrap it up here. This is Michael Zarling with Gene Strews. And please remember to wear purple since we're now in the season of lightning. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wants the water of life take it as a gift. Stay thirsty, my friends, then drink deeply from the water of life. <laughs>